Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. to episode 55 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalist Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We are recording live at Selfridges in collaboration with Google and it's such a joy to be recording this on a Friday evening when everyone's a bit giddy having escaped from work. Oh dear. <laughs> Listen, you can hear the crowd. They are out of control. They are dropping phones. They are coughing. It's a Friday night audience. But no, it's really nice to do this on a Friday night rather than a Monday night when we always feel like we sort of have to apologise to anyone because it's so, such a sad night, a Monday night. Yeah. A Friday night is a high-low night. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Who's feeling good? <laughs> The Hilo has been in the papers today. Has anyone picked up the Evening Standard this evening? <laughs> so um, I found out about this because, yes, I have Google alerts for my own name. And um, it came up, the Evening Standard, uh, the Londoner's Diary, picked up a story about the Hilo. And I didn't see what it was initially. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to be because of our... Uh, amazing episode last week where we were talking about race and we were talking about religion and maybe we've sparked a kind of think piece. No, no. (laughs) It's in the Londoners' story. Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes, who host the chart-topping podcast, The Hilo, have received a unique plaudit. Two cows born on Manor Farm in Sedgebrook (laughs) have been named after the pair Utterly Wonderful. (laughs) But they did call us chart-topping. Yes, and it is. Did. I have to say, it is applauded more than anything else. When I put up the cows, I put up Dolly and Pandora on my Instagram stories. You know, this is Dolly the cow, this is Pandora the cow. And I did get messages from friends being like, I think that's probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to you. And yeah. I was like, I mean, it is pretty great. So <laughs> the last time we recorded a live podcast for Google, I was just becoming obviously pregnant so I was no longer able to sort of hide that I was pregnant I think I was about five months and now my daughter is 10 weeks old so it feels really nice to be here from the other side and I won't spend the entire podcast desperate for a wee either which is (laughs) yeah I'm incredibly happy to be back here and I'm also incredibly excited that straight after this podcast record I am fulfilling a girlhood lifelong dream can you guess what that is well, I mean, I know what it is. <laughs> I thought you'd play along with guessing. No, what are you doing? What's your lifelong... That was such a strangulated <laughs> sentence. What is your lifelong girlhood dream? I am taking the sleeper train to Cornwall. <laughs> is anyone else surprised that still exists? <laughs> they call it the Great, the great Western Train. But call it's only it. six hours. So are you arriving at 6.45am? I arrive at 7am. I depart Paddington at 11.45. And it is called the Nighttime Riviera. <laughs> Do you want to hear something really depressing? Oh, so... I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> it's 
so sad. I have to share it. So my sister is babysitting my daughter tonight. And I said, you know, I'll be back by whatever time. And she was like, go have a drink. It's fine. So Dolly said, oh, I don't have to be, I'm not getting this train at 11.45. So I was like, we could have a drink. So obviously, I'm not having that many cocktails at the moment. And Dolly was like, it's fine. I'm quite happy to spend three hours on my own at Paddington. <laughs> I was like, my God, I don't think I've ever received such a resounding rejection that you would rather spend three hours in a train station on your own on a Friday night than have a drink with me. Because... And then she was like, I, I just didn't want you to feel like you had to. I was like, I, sure. I feel sure. That's like what it was. You must feel... Yeah, no, you like did you this earlier and it cocktail. didn't work then. <laughs> Another neat circle, as it were, is that the last time we were doing a Google podcast was when all the Weinstein allegations had just broken, believe it or not, when the Me Too hashtag was this brand new thing. And I remember I had to apologize. Actually, I didn't. They were ineffably cool about it. But I felt like I had to apologize to Google because I think I said wanked into a pot plant about five times. A number of times. But yeah. in this neat circle, we are sort of, in a slightly different guise, revisiting that chapter this evening. But not the pot plant. Not the pot plant. But before we get into the meaty stuff, I'm going to say meaty stuff. There's no race or religion after we tackled that double whammy and had sweats all afternoon earlier this week. What have you been enjoying, Dolly? And don't reply rosé. I know you enjoyed a lot of rosé last night. I did. A no bit, voice notes, A though. little bit too much. No, no voice notes. I've got a bit shy with voice notes recently, haven't I? No, you completely pulled back. I know. Yeah. No, other than rosé, something that I'd like to recommend that I've been listening to is the podcast Guys We Fucked. So, for anyone who doesn't know, Guys We Fucked is kind of the first podcast I think we got into. I think you told me about it. And it's uh, a few years old. And it's hosted by two comedians called uh, Corinne Fisher and Christine Hutchinson. And it started as a, it's an anti-slut-shaming podcast, feminist podcast. And it started as an experiment where Corinne, the comedian, had her heart broken and was dumped by her long-term boyfriend. And she decided to do a kind of investigative project where she interviewed every ex-boyfriend and guy that she'd fucked <laughs> to find out to kind of piece together w what was happening and where it all went wrong and where it all went right and they you I've kind of followed their journey it's a really really great podcast and I've followed their journey for a number of years and like Corinne got a uh, boyfriend a couple of years ago and she kind of had to come out and publicly say on the podcast because people are really invested in their lives because so much of it is about their sexuality and their personal life. They decided last week to do this episode where they both talked about the fact that they've both broken up with their boyfriends. And it just struck me as a real amazing kind of... It showed me how amazing podcasts can be because it was this incredible kind of storytelling and documentation that we kind of followed them on that journey. And it was a very vulnerable and very honest episode and it was great hearing them kind of being so emotionally honest about their relationships and I really applaud them. So I would highly recommend listening to that. And it also made me think about how we, we've just been on quite a journey in the last couple of years and I was thinking how Pandora, since the Pandoli days, you've turned 30, got married, had a baby, moved into a house and I have got a fringe cut. <laughs> The, and there was a funny bit as well, because I listened to this week's episode came out today where they're talking about the reaction to the breakup episode, which was obviously a huge episode. And they said that both of their ex-boyfriends, the day that it came out, bearing in mind this is a feminist podcast that has like... Two half, million listeners. Yeah, no, well, two, I think it has like now about half a million listeners a week. And the day after the breakup episode went out, they said that both their ex-boyfriends were inundated with listeners sliding into their DMs being like... Yeah. 
do you want to have sex? Oh, yeah. not like I'm so sorry. No, and Corinne is so funny. She's like from New Jersey and she's really bad. She's like, guys, listen to the podcast. It's a feminist fucking podcast. <laughs> Don't be creeping on my ex-boyfriend for fuck's sake. It's really, really funny. <laughs> I'm glad they're on good enough terms to, yeah. to learn about that. Speaking of podcasts, I laughed along to Call Your Girlfriend's podcast on Hey Ladies, which is a fictional account by Michelle Markowitz and Caroline Moss about the hen party wedding rigmarole between eight best friends, which I think most women, and maybe some men, are quite familiar with. And they've basically created a buzzword for it, like Bridezilla, of the hey lady. And they, they have all these ways of defining a hey lady's email. So it's kind of this overly saccharine, quite passive-aggressive mail out for planning a Hindu, and they say the sign of a hey ladies email is that you always owe $40 by the time you've read to the end, <laughs> end of the email. And they're very funny on all those Hindu signifiers. Like everyone fills in a, goog- a Google doodle of when they are available. And it's like, I'm available from 5.15 till 5.24 on Wednesday. <laughs> and, and then they make you block out an entire month because you don't know when the hen's, you know, they don't know when the hen's going to fall. And then the hen or bachelorette, as they call it, will definitely be organized outside of that month that you've blocked like <laughs> off, uh, off for six months. And it's very, very funny. And I can only apologize to anyone having organized three hens for friends if I've ever sent a hey ladies, hey ladies. a hey ladies email. Do you know but- what my, my least favourite is when they say, let's get ready to roost. <laughs> what? They say that. I, okay, you know some serious hey ladies. Yeah. yeah. I've never I think Love I'm not gonna say the hens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you not had that? <laughs> I've also just started watching The Defiant Ones. So it's a documentary mini-series which aired last year on HBO in the States, and it's now on Netflix, and it's about the friendship between Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. Oh, I'd love that. Who co-founded Beats and then sold it to Apple last year for $3 billion. And it's ostensibly based, like, starting with that deal, but it's actually just... You would love it. It's actually just a, a documentary that goes right back to when Jimmy was going up in the 70s and Dr. Dre in the 80s and they have the most incredible talking heads you know quite often on like music programs the talking head is like martin who was once in a band 14 years ago and never actually met i can't think of like the, any musician they've the, they, the nme features editor <laughs> in 95 yeah. yeah exactly they've got like gwen stefani oh, will cool. i am stevie nicks like it's an incredible roster of talking heads so that is really good you would really enjoy it and in fact it's quite odd that i am watching it you i know not. it's quite weird well my friend elsa like you have to watch it it's completely amazing and that's on netflix that is on netflix Great, yeah. I will be watching that. Not even sponsored by them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had lots of interesting responses to last week's episode in the mailbag, as Pandora insists that I, I do. say. I do. I'm going to actually make us one. <laughs> we got this email from Megan in response to our discussion on the Met Balls theme of heavenly bodies, fashion and the Catholic imagination. Megan said, in response to your question as to why Catholicism was an acceptable theme for the event when there would be outrage at other religion or culture being used, I think it's very important to point out that it was because the Catholic Church itself were fully involved in the entire process. This is not a privilege that is afforded to, say, the Native American community before people wear their headdresses to a festival. Mm -hmm. Very true. The Vatican donated the main pieces of the collection to be shown at the Met with full knowledge of the theme of the accompanying gala. The exhibition is the celebration of the ornate, intricate clothing worn by those with the most power in this most powerful of religions. These garments are both signifiers and physical manifestations of the extreme position of privilege 
unrivaled wealth the Catholic Church has created for itself in many ways through the oppression of huge numbers of people and enjoyed for centuries. This is not the same thing as co-opting the culture of a marginalised and oppressed group for aesthetic ideas of what's cool. Yeah, that's really true. And I think we touched on it a bit in the podcast, but not so explicitly and articulately. And they did, they, I mean, the Vatican loaned 50 pieces for that exhibition. But I think that's another reason why it's unsettling. And it comes back to that point made by the girl that worked for the Catholic Church in New Zealand, which is that it was kind of just good PR before the referendum in Ireland. It it all feels like they are beautiful, beautiful pieces. The iconography of the Catholic Church is is unreal. I think it's more just that, like, I don't know, Cardi B and Rihanna. It's just quite, quite random. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to emails to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Dolly and I are casting our eye over the news, looking for someone or something that has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is Rochelle Barrett, a 29-year-old girl from Sheffield who is a burn survivor launching a beauty pageant for people with disfigurements. Rochelle suffered third-degree burns to 70% of her body when a childminder tripped over her with a boiling kettle when she was eight months old. Doctors did not expect her to survive. The whole of her left arm was burnt, her left breast is not fully formed, and her right thigh is covered in scars. But her face, by some miracle, healed. Having spent years hiding her burns with clothes and makeup, she still took part in beauty pageants and now wants to launch her own for people with disfigurements. What an incredible woman. Thank you to our sponsor Google for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. On to this week's agenda. Harvey Weinstein's ex-wife, Georgina Chapman, gives the interview that if not everyone, then a lot of people have been waiting for. We're going to discuss the interview, the response, and whether or not you should be held accountable for the wrongdoings of your other half. Also on today's show, we are discussing the Cannes Film Festival's new ruling. So let's start with Georgina Chapman's interview for US Vogue, which no doubt due to unprecedented demand has gone online as well as in the print magazine and is already conjuring up a lot of comments and think pieces and responses. Mm. What do you think of Georgina, a 42-year-old British fashion designer who was married to Harvey for a decade until she learned of his transgressions, choosing Vogue to do this interview? think that this is an interview that everyone is waiting for everyone wanted to hear from her and I think to conflate it because she's there in the capacity as a fashion designer sort of I think throughout the interview and I think to conflate that story and about kind of rebuilding her brand and talking about her brand with talking about the wife being the wife of Harvey Weinstein in kind of a trade magazine, essentially. I just found, I found the choice quite odd of it being Vogue. I like you describing Vogue as a trade magazine. <laughs> but it is Dolly won't a... be writing for US Vogue anytime soon. Is... <laughs> Let's park that. I think it was quite a considered move. Had she gone with the Sunday Times magazine, say, and I, and I wish she had, it, it would have been a much more interrogative mm. interview. I think she felt quite cosseted by her friendship with Anna Wintour. In the editor's letter, Anna says they've been friends since 2004. And the fact that she has this fashion label, Marquesa, and Vogue is a fashion title. So it was sort of her coming out post-scandal. I mean, she says in the piece that she hasn't left the house for five whole months. 
but in this quite subtle, fragranced, protected way. And actually, I totally understand why she went for a safer option. You know, when, when, when we've spoken about it before, the first interview she ever did was going to be utterly terrifying yeah. for her. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think... You know, I think she's, she's damned if she does and she's damned if she doesn't because I think if she, if she doesn't speak about it, it's, it would be understood that that was disrespectful to the victims. Mm-hmm. But then I think there was also a feeling that if she does speak about it, then somehow that's in bad taste or narcissistic or making it about her. And the, and the fact is, it, it is a bit about her. Like, we can't pretend it's not a, a bit about her. I like, it's, it's a valid story. And I also think that, like, it must have been horrendous. Yeah. Imagine finding that out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the level of scrutiny and vitriol is at, is at fever pitch, I think, around anything Weinstein-related. But that said, even though it was in this glossy fashion magazine I didn't find it an anodyne interview I I thought she came across quite carefully Mm. she's definitely quite delicate and everyone quoted in the piece was very careful to sort of say oh we weren't sure about Harvey but she was so happy you know it it was always geared ever so gently towards exonerating her and fair enough why would you do press as her unless it's going to hopefully sort of exonerate you. But it was also a really revealing interview. We learned that finances are are, are now an issue. The Weinstein Company, this isn't in the piece, but the Weinstein Company has declared bankruptcy and is currently selling off all of the work that it has under development, which is actually causing hundreds of films and young directors to completely stall without the funding. I learned that this week rather sadly from, from a producer. The couple's three ritzy houses are being sold. Georgina's buying a farm in upstate New York. She says she really wants to get away from what you sense is the hollow glamour of the world that she was living in. And she also describes how she was sick to her stomach for five whole days, like physically sick for five days after the allegations broke. She, ca- she claims to have known absolutely nothing about her husband at all. Now, most people, bar Abby Morgan, deny knowledge of him being a rapist. We discussed on last ep- the last episode how Abby Morgan kind of amazingly and sensationally said, you know, I think I did know that he was a rapist and I think I didn't do anything about it and I need to own up to that. But most people have said, oh, you know, we had no idea. But everyone does admit that they knew that he was boorish and a bully. But she describes this almost kind of unimpeachable character. She says... I had what I thought was a very happy marriage. I loved my life. And when asked if she was suspicious about him, she says, absolutely not, never. Do you believe her, Dolly? I th- yes, I do. And I think this is, I, that might make me sound naive, but I think, I think that the default we believe is that in most relationships, and certainly in marriages, that there's this absolute intimacy that we know each other very incredibly well and that's what the nature of marriage is but I don't think that's true for everyone I mean you constantly hear about people who have an entire family in Hawaii or blows my mind I'm not saying this is obviously very different to being like married to an alleged rapist but I I think that she she probably didn't Hawaii's a stretch I think it's normally like the next borough (laughs) (laughs) Ipswich yeah I think well the other thing is she says that they lived very separate lives and that he was always away and always on sets, which made total sense. Like, that added up to me. And also, it, I, I actually find it harder to swallow when people who worked with him say that they didn't know anything at all, or people who were at work parties with him or who were engaged with that power dynamic. But I think in the home and in a domestic space, I think he very 
I know I can't analyze Harvey Weinstein I don't know him but I think maybe he could have been an entirely different person I did feel like there was a big piece of the story missing I have to say as I was reading it and the bit of the story that was missing for me was the nature of their marriage I feel like I feel like something was going on with why they got married or why they were together that that we're not being told. That paradigm is always explored as Beauty and the Beast for, like, obvious aesthetic reasons. Yeah. There was an interesting bit in the article where she says that he's an exceptional father. And she's like, my children love him so much. Which, like, what do I yeah. do with that? And that is devastating, because I, I, as soon as they get old enough to realise what he's like, I imagine they probably will never have that relationship with him again. And as a mother, that, that must be heartbreaking, yeah. regardless of what they've done. But I think it's the thing that I found odd is that, like, all their friends, as you've mentioned, around them, they do some, like, really good not digging, yeah, but they Gaiman. do some good investigating. And the actor as well that she was at university with, where they ask about the nature of their marriage. And everyone said, we really, we weren't sure about him. We didn't think they were a great match. We were worried about their marriage. We were worried about their relationship. We were worried about the wedding. So it's like, well, why? I feel like there's something there. And when she's asked about... Why did you love him? What was it about him that you loved? The first thing she said is that he's a good father. I just, I don't know. I felt like I didn't get any vivid sense of why she fell in love with that man or why she was married to him. So I I can't speculate, but I felt like there was a piece of the story missing in terms of their relationship. What I've been musing upon is, does it matter if we believe her? Is it relevant? She didn't commit any crimes. He did. She's arguably just the collateral damage. Some commentary has remarked upon Georgina's wide-eyed denialism, which is a great phrase, about the whole thing suggesting that she is utterly disingenuous because obviously it's not to her advantage to admit that she knew he was a total pig. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a slightly futile question. It's the question that everyone's most obsessed with around this conversation. As well as, where is Harvey? Where is Harvey? Is he in Arizona? Yeah, Pandora and I literally WhatsApp each other that about once a week. Dolly does send me once going, where is Harvey? The question that everyone seems to be kind of obsessed about is, is how do we know if she's telling the truth or not? And the fact is, we just won't ever be able to, we can't prove that or police that. So I feel like it's a bit of a futile question. As you say, for me, the more interesting and telling question is, should she be defined by what he did by what he did by this man's by this man's action actions should we judge her and i don't know you know this jekyll and hyde thing that people keep coming back to again when they were talking to her friends and said what kind of man was he what was he like as, as a friend's partner's friend's spouse to hang out with and all of them said he could be a bully and he could be very scary and very domineering but he could also be incredibly charming and incredibly funny i think yeah. that's what was one of the things one of the new york times journalists who won a pulitzer prize for the new york times story breaking the news jody canter tweeted in response to Georgina's claim that the first article she read pre-existed her relationship with Weinstein. I don't know what Georgina Chapman did or didn't know, but her statement here is incorrect. Our first article about Weinstein had three decades of allegations, 1990 to 2000, and I've written that down wrong. 201 is what I've written, (laughs) but a number of years. And what I found really interesting was the responses to that tweet about 70% of the feedback was, you know, back off, stop attacking her. One tweet read, unnecessary, unkind, and discourages women in similar situations from taking action, which I thought was really interesting. You're assuming your article was the first one she read. Arrogant much, wrote another. And I'm really torn on this because part of me does think, how could you not know? How, how, 
how. Another part of me does think, as Dolly says, stop holding this woman accountable. Stop holding her to interrogation as if she was an accomplice. You know, clearly she wasn't. Why is she having to publicly redeem herself, which is what this article feels like? Isn't her only crime that she had, you know, terrible taste in men? Caroline O'Donoghue wrote a great piece for the pool on this which I'd like to quote from. She said, the neatest, trimmest, most feminist answer is simple. Women should not be held accountable for men's actions. It's definitely the answer I want to believe in because God knows women are blamed for simply knowing dangerous men every day. Amy Schumer was attacked for simply employing a man who made a rape joke. Lena Dunham made the woeful decision to defend girls' staffer Murray Miller after he was accused of sexual assault, but she still received more public criticism than Miller. I mean, that is astonishing Mm. when you think of that. The one who was actually accused did. And this isn't just a celebrity thing either. When women are killed by their partners, you don't have to wait long for the inevitable. Well, she did know he was violent. She should have left. But this isn't a neat, trim, tidily feminist issue. I'm starting to think nothing is. I'm reminded of the Edmund Burke quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Do we need a revised quote? All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good wives do nothing. I think it's a very good piece. And I think, as she states, it's not simple. And yes, we, we do have... Um, as humans, we do have a duty to the welfare of our fellow humans if we know someone that we care about, if someone we care about potentially could be a danger to them. But historically, I think we also have to take into account that there is quite a, gen- a gender double standard in terms of the responsibility that women have to take on behalf of men. I remember, and I think I've referenced this before on the podcast, that I once had an editor with whom I had a heated debate about how much we should be judged on our choice of paramour. So I said, we are not the men we marry. And she said to me in response, totally taken aback, but we are, we totally are. It speaks volumes about you, your character, your morality. By extension, with that logic, that would mean that she is as rotten as him. Yeah, but I I think I return to that. I think I return to what I said earlier about how by assuming that we assume the default template of marriage is that two people are being entirely honest and know each other inside out. Yes, absolutely. Like I think sometimes I interviewed Marianne Keyes about love last week and she said, you know, I think we are strangers to ourselves as well as to each other. So I think you, you can think that you're madly in love and incredibly close to someone and it's either a figment of your imagination or something that they've projected it's you know the i think it's um it's not as simple as if you're close to someone you know everything about them and therefore by default you associate with their morality but i found really interesting is when she talked about her friendship with anthony weiner's ex-wife humor abedin for those unfamiliar anthony was a new york congressman who was sentenced to 21 months in jail for sexting a teenager Humor was a Clinton aide and his long-suffering wife who eventually left him when yet another sex- sexting scandal turned out to be with an underage girl. There are two bits I found particularly poignant around this friendship in the piece. Georgina says, I don't want to be viewed as a victim because I don't think I am. I am a woman in a shit situation, but I don't think it's unique, which I think is a very cool and right thing for her to say. And Humor herself is quoted in the piece on this very lack of uniqueness. We just bonded in all kinds of ways. This particular club, ironically, it's not such a small one. Women who have had to endure it in such a public way, women like Georgina and me, people don't feel sorry for us. You don't get empathy. People think you're beautiful, you're thin, you're rich, you're photographed on the red carpet, and you get stuck in this category. 
That, to me, was almost the most interesting bit in the whole piece. It's a pretty revealing thing, that sentence, like you often say, Dolly, about a woman's currency in the world. The fact that Georgina's thinness somehow makes her less deserving of empathy or the fact that her richness will bring out a huge amount of schadenfreude in people. Yeah, yeah. I do think that's true. And also, personally, I don't subscribe to this idea that her pain or her experience is irrelevant because of the pain and experience of the victims. Like, I think there's a realm in which both, like... Both can coexist. Yeah, all those stories can be truthful and exist and be as legitimate. Like, one doesn't negate the other. I don't think by her sharing her story, it means that she's, like, somehow making this tragedy all about her. She does say the reason why she didn't leave the house for five months is that she did not feel that the victim, like, that she deserved to be seen by anyone, which I also thought was... If it was a PR move, she did a very good one because she really did come across as as respectful and simultaneously devastated as possible. The Cart wrote an interesting piece of commentary about the interview, or rather Anna Wintour's editor's letter, suggesting that it is a mea culpa for Anna as much as it is Georgina. This is no casual orchestration, Stella Bugby writes. The article comes out mere days after Scarlett Johansson wore Marquesa, Georgina's brand, to the Met Gala, co-hosted by Anna Wintour. With this letter, Wintour positions herself alongside Chapman. They were two women close to Harvey who both claimed to know nothing of his crimes but Ben benefited from his association with power. Just look at the pipeline of Weinstein's starlets that grace the covers of Vogue, some of them wearing Marquesa. By asking us to forgive and forget for Chapman, Wintour asks that we do the same for her. This is not the first time Wintour has come out in support of a disgraced designer or endorsed questionable people in the name of fashion. It might not even be the most agrarious. Let's not forget the Galliano goodwill tour she embarked on after the designer's anti-Semitic rant in a Paris restaurant. Let's not forget the glowing lifestyle portrait of Assad's wife on the eve of his butchery of his own people. Christ, that interview. I'll forever remember that. The rose in the desert about how, en- how enlightened Asma and Al-Assad were. She also references an interview from 1995 when Anna Wintour went on to Charlie Rose's show. Ironic, the presenter in the States has also been accused of multiple assaults in a post-MeToo world to defend Calvin Klein after the designer released an ad campaign which referenced child porn and was investigated by the Justice Department. Really interesting piece, that. Yeah, there was an interesting line in, in, the Stella, in the Stella Bugby piece where she says, I do not blame Georgina Chapman, neither am I convinced there's any obligation to give her a comeback in Vogue, which I think I sort of agree with. I think yeah, the, evils, I the evils and the actions of Harvey Weinstein or those actions not being stopped is, is not the fault of his wife, but neither is she owed a space to promote her brand. Like, I get that it is tragic. Like, she's lost her partner. She, her children have kind of lost her, her father. And she's lost her public profile and perhaps her career. But uh, f- the, the only bit that jarred for me in the interview is that so much of it did feel like it, it was focused on her brand. And I just think that if she, if she wants to rebuild her brand, like, that's, that's totally fine. It's her livelihood, as you said. It sounds like she's having financial difficulties and the woman's got to live. But I wouldn't do it off the back of talking about the experience of being Harvey Weinstein's wife. I would keep them pretty separate. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Support for the Hilo comes from Moet and Shandon. Moet has been at the centre of celebrations for nearly 200 years and what a celebration there's going to be this weekend with the much-anticipated royal wedding. Sadly, we have no insider knowledge on what Haz and Mez are doing for their big day, but we do know that 2018 is all about the Champagne Tower, in addition to the cake. In 1983, Moet and Shandon established a first world record for highest champagne pyramid with 2,757 crystal glasses piled into a bubbling tower. Moet have launched four new bridal packages reflecting the spirit of the house, glamour, grandeur, generosity and vanguard. When you purchase Moet and Shandon for your big day, benefit from complimentary touches such as mini Moets, personalised for wedding favours or hen and a champagne tower or a private lunch at the house of Moet on Avenue de Champagne with a private cellar tour. For full information, visit www.clos19.com forward slash Moet wedding. Big congratulations to Harry and Meghan and a big thank you to Moet. On to a lighter topic. This has been the week of Cannes Film Festival, which this year was opened by Martin Scorsese. The red carpet glittered with the likes of Kate Blanchett, Julianne Moore, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. So far, so can. But this year, there was one crucial difference. Before the ceremony, festival organisers made good on their pledge to stamp out red carpet selfies. Guests carrying phones were asked to put them away while security guards stepped in to prevent attendees taking pictures of themselves. And there were signs, there were actual signs on the red carpet outlawing selfies. Variety reported an army of security guards, sorry, someone from Variety went kind of undercover to experience what this kind of selfie ban was like on the red carpet. Variety reported an army of security guards covered nearly every corner of the carpet, rushing at guests who even carried their phones at a suspicious angle. When I first stepped on the, on the carpet, I tried to send a tweet. A guard came up to me, grabbed my shoulder, inspected my ticket, and told me to put my phone down. What do you make of this, Panda? Well, it's not the first time that Can have imposed these slightly antiquated rules... Do you not remember their, their no flat shoes ban in 2015? No. And the likes of Kendall Jenner rebelled and wore sandals. God, I mean, that's so fucking French, isn't it? <laughs> Basically, everyone completely ignored that diktat. And it got them some really bad press because some people think that wearing heels, the way it forces your bum and your boobs to jot, jut out, is quite misogynistic because it yeah. conforms to a, woman, uh, you know, a man's ideal silhouette of womanhood rather than allowing a woman to be comfortable. I personally prefer heels for a formal occasion, but it is a very odd and out-of-date rule that totally failed. Do you not think that the selfie ban will just be ignored in exactly the same way? I mean, they have a selfie ban at the Met Gala, and that is ignored in the most hilarious way. Instagram have a table at the gala, for God's sake, (laughs) and every year without fail, a group celebrity selfie, normally in the loo, where they're also smoking, which is also banned, circulates. (laughs) I mean... I know I'm at risk of sounding like a kind of retired headmaster of a boarding school. (laughs) But as the resident octogenarian of this podcast, I'm happy to say, I I think it's a good idea. I think quite right too. I think 
you know, my argument actually is less about, you know, that kind of hackney thing of we need to live in the moment. And it's more about the kind of art of documentation. And I think when you look at kind of old school red carpet photos or these kind of big event photos pre-smartphones, what they're capturing is, you know, if you follow something like Lost in History pics on Instagram, Mm. which I love, well, I know I'm a nostalgist, but what you're capturing there is like chemistry and laughter and glamour and fashion and you know people kind of chatting with each other and interactions and life and I feel like now it's really hard to capture actual life because what you're always capturing is people capturing themselves and I really noticed that with couples with videos of couples coming out of the church on their wedding day with confetti being thrown over them when you have the camera like on the video when it comes when it pulls back all it is is just everyone standing there with their phone and it just I don't know, for me it's more about if you don't have people taking those selfies then they have to be, then you kind of you capture it in a more beautiful and authentic way, so just let the fucking photographers do it on the red carpet, I think Do you think if Dodie Smith was writing her book now, it would be called I Capture the Capturer? Yes, exactly it's quite meta. I mean, it depends on who you're asking here if you're asking Pandora, a grown woman and journalist with a fairly hefty cringe complex and disdain for celebrity worship then I would say yes selfies are garish at events like this and you know they should be outlawed but if you're asking Pandora who sees a celebrity in a real setting then yes I'm trotting across and wanting (laughs) and wanting a (laughs) selfie so you know we all we all even do it at places like Soho House which bans social media but again seems to exist more on Instagram Mm. than it does in real life. Well, Variety reports that apparently it did leave a it, bit of a sombre mood. Apparently there was, a, there was a palpable mood shift, the fact that everyone couldn't have their So pose. sad, selfie sadness. Selfie sadness. <laughs> selfie despair. And apparently there was this, like, one white wall that they could, like, escape to to have their photo taken. And apparently it was like, you know, it was like they'd found freedom and everyone was, like, lolloping over there and they were so happy when they got to the white wall. So, I don't know. I think I... If that were me, I was trying to think how I would feel about it. And I think, as you know very well from having to manage me from time to time, I don't like rules and I hate being told what to do. So I think maybe I would have kicked back a bit on that. Maybe I would have been right up on the white wall the minute I got there. Interestingly, I think the, the, when I was researching why they banned um, selfies, I think it's kind of a philo- philosophical statement from the Well, director. they are French, obviously. Well, they are French, yeah. <laughs> Thierry Frameau... God forgive me, is the director of the awards ceremony. And he said, you don't come to Cannes to see yourselves, you come to see films. And in a selfie, people always look really ugly. So French. So, yeah, so French. But that kind of last part aside, that bit of bathos that slightly undercuts what he'd said, which I think is quite poignant. I think that's really interesting. I think we're so inward looking and we're so cannibalistic in terms of looking at ourselves and our own lives in terms of how we both produce content and self-identify and experience the world, surely when you're at a film festival, which is all about kind of taking in other people's stories and being curious, and uh, that's a moment where you should be kind of outward-looking. So, yeah, I do. I think that kind of made sense when he said that. I'm really interested in the idea of content, using that word. 2017 spawned the content creator and the content curator, and legitimate jobs like that now exist, thanks to Instagram and the slew of internet garbage which needs cutting through and finessing and arranging i mean look at the flat lay phenomenon do you know what a flat lay is boring sex (laughs) 
No, I do think I know what it is. It's, an, it's when you put the shoes on it's the floor. It's an artfully... Sort of. It's an artfully kind of arranged photographic assortment of ornaments or clothes arranged on a flat surface. And that is now content. A packet of crisps, shoes you, should you choose to put it on the internet, is content. Anything is content should you capture it. He also said and I just love this, he said, it's also a technical matter. It takes far too long to walk the carpet, and they fall, they tumble, because they're not paying attention. And I just love the idea of these celebrities being these sort of milk-drunk toddlers, just sort of all falling over each other. He's right, though. Have you never walked into a lamppost whilst holding your phone? That may have happened, yes. I've definitely done that. Yep. I disagree with him, though, about everyone looking ugly in a selfie. And I think you do too, Dolly, because if you didn't, you wouldn't have posted that sexy little picture of yourself in that sexy yellow dress last night. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think some of my greatest achievements in life have been wildly flattering selfies. <laughs> That's all we're going to talk about now, because we would like to hand over to you for a live Ask the Hilo. And you actually do have to ask questions, but you can't cut that bit too. You do. You do have to ask. Dolly, I think obviously everybody probably here knows about your book as well. Um, and talking about love, I think probably what's really poignant between the Harvey and, I'm going to get it wrong, Georgia? Georgina. <laughs> Georgina. Through a spanner. There we go. I know. Thanks, Dolly. Um, do you think that your response to kind of that as well is you're very kind of maybe right now quite sensitive to love or breakups or kind of with everything that you're talking about? And everything in the media, everyone is kind of jumping on the bandwagon, but kind of maybe your stance on it is slightly skewed. I don't know, that's a very random question, but... I think we're both quite sensitive to love. We both love love. Yeah, Yeah, I know, I think that's a really interesting question, and I think definitely, you know, there's a reason why when Cat Person came out, any woman that I know that had been single in their 20s, it it really resonated. Not to say that you can't understand... Um, the nuances and the kind of trauma of cat person if you haven't been kind of single in your 20s or doing online dating or whatever. But I think you do become much more engaged with the dynamics between men and women traditionally and patriarchally and how that plays out um, in, in kind of courtship. So maybe it is something that I'm particularly sensitive to. As Pandora says, I mean... We are both quite obsessed, I think, with men and women and dyna- those kind of dynamics and romance. I am always, I'm quite naive. So actually, when I was reading that profile, I kept having to check myself, being like, am I being seduced by the description of how she's walking through the kitchen and looking vulnerable? Or do I actually believe... I, I'm much more mawkish than Dolly, actually. I'll, yeah, you, yeah, because I'll be like, I watch this beautiful thing, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, right, weren't they a really lovely couple didn't believe in them? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, maybe you are. Anyway, there you go. Okay. Next one. That was a great question. <laughs> yes. It's a boy. <laughs> That's what Dolly does every time she pulls. <laughs> pulls. Finally, I can't remember um, Author special is really interesting. So who would be, like, your dream guest? We've had some That's dream guests. Question. Like, truly, I think Tina Brown was a dream guest for us because the podcast was named after her. That's a good question. Who, is, who would our dream guest be? Martin Amis. Don't see that happening. <laughs> oh, God, that's so interesting. I want to go and look at my bookshelf. You know, we've got some really good, juicy author specials coming up in the next couple of months, and, and those are kind of some of our dreams. Monica authors. Lewinsky, actually. Oh, Monica Lewinsky, I would love, yeah. She would be a, John be Ronson, a I'd love John Ronson. Yeah. He goes on bloody anything. I reckon we could get him. Yeah, I think John's probably easier than, than Mon. You John can't escape Mon. John Ronson when you're on podcast episodes. Dolly, we're never 
get now. You basically just call him a hoe. <laughs> well, on the podcast, like, I think he would agree he is. But that's wonderful because he's like, I worship at the altar of John Ronson. Tangling yourself round and round, aren't you? Um, Monica Lewinsky's a very good call. That's all for me. I think that's <laughs> it. We have loved talking to you. Thank you so at much you. for listening. Talking at you. Um, you For everyone at home, you can follow The High Low at The High Low Show on Twitter or you can email us. Nice ones, please. The High Low Show at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.